This is Crypto Radio, powered by MoneyWeb, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. This is Crypto Radio for MoneyWeb. I'm Kieran Ryan. Joining me today are John Avadia, founder of crypto company Ovex. Welcome, John. How's it, Karen? And also Jason Carpenter from Etherbridge. Hello, Jason. How's it, Karen? Thanks for having me on. We're talking all things crypto. First off, I just want to throw this at both of you. I spoke yesterday to the Financial Services Conduct Authority, the FSCA, and it's clear that cryptos are perceived as the financial wild west. I'm sure you would agree that that perception is out there. It's largely unregulated, though regulation is coming. It seems cryptos are soon to be covered by the FISA Act, the Financial Advisory and Intermediaries Act. John, is it the financial wild west and should we welcome regulation? Yeah, absolutely. I think regulation is a key, key part uh, for crypto for the crypto industry in South Africa, especially as an exchange. It's very difficult for us to operate without regulation. So it makes things like opening up bank accounts and um, gaining customer trust very difficult. So I think regulation will clear a lot of that up quite quickly. And it's important because there's a lot of bad actors in the industry that will get flushed out very, very quickly. Okay, we'll come to the bad actors in a minute. Jason, same question to you. Do we need regulation? We definitely need regulation. And... Uh, I think it'll really help spur on everyone involved in the industry and clear up a whole lot of questions that have been left unanswered. Okay, and what should the regulation look like in your opinion? I think the regulation, well, the first and most obvious thing is uh, um, strong KYC and AML requirements on crypto just, companies. Just explain what AML is. So AML is anti-money laundering right. laws. So there are um, requirements to, the KYC means know your customers, so requirements to um, get identity and address documentation for your customers to prevent... Um, money laundering, which is very common in the financial business. So I think it makes sense to start off with that. And then followed by that, then you definitely want investor protection and audits and segregated funds and that kind of oversight as well on crypto companies. I had an email yesterday from uh, one of the MoneyWeb readers, and he says, I'm 60 years old. I'm very interested in cryptos. I am also a little bit nervous. What would your advice be to him? Should he invest in cryptos? Yeah, I'd say I think everyone should put a small allocation of their portfolio in cryptos. But I would say that I think people should uh, limit what they can afford to lose. They shouldn't put anything that they'll need in the next five to 10 years um, in cryptos because crypto is up and down every day significantly. Right. And Jason, what would your advice be to yeah. somebody who's 60 years old? Yeah, so I think that everyone should have low single digit allocations to crypto assets because the risk reward profile of these assets is is good enough to allocate very small amounts and still get the benefits in terms of risk adjusted returns that are superior to your normal uh, everyday portfolio. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I guess it's, it's the ultimate hedge. So I think that everyone should have a bit of crypto in their portfolio. I think we should probably point out that the Bitcoin itself is up 90% so far this year. Yeah. I'm not tracking on a day-to-day basis, but I think it's something like that, right? Something like that. Yeah. I think from its lows, 90% from its uh, 2020 lows. Because Bitcoin yeah. had that drop where it dropped 50% in one day uh, yeah, I think in March. We, I think we are about 90% year to date, to be honest. We're All right. 150% so from the 90% up from the low in March, yeah. right? Well, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's quite phenomenal. Yeah. No, quite it's, phenomenal. Yeah. Bitcoin's proved to be, I think, the most resilient uh, asset through this year by far. Yeah, and I think Ethereum is up about 200% from those lows as well, yeah. a little well, bit more. Well, probably year to date, looking just <coughs> over 200%, so it's, oh, it's done brilliantly, about 250% year to date. So. Right. Yeah. And of course, it's returns like that that has people looking at this space. Of course. But the volatility is something quite incredible. Yeah. However, I have noticed recently that the volatility is declining. Do you want to talk about that, Jason? Yeah, so volatility has been coming down for the last sort of four cycles that Bitcoin has gone had to go through. So... We're about to enter sort of quite a powerful upside volatility movement with a supply squeeze and 
happening with the halving. Yes. Somebody explain to me, what is a halving? So yeah, when Bitcoin was launched, uh, every day there were about 7,200 Bitcoin that could be mined on a daily basis. Right. Um, that could be, you could uh, put in work and effort and you could then earn these coins as an incentive to power this new financial network. Right. In 2012, that, that reward was cut down to 3,600. In 2016, it was cut down to 1,800. And now in May 2020, it got cut down to 900. And, and really, that, that supply halving has been a massive um, factor in Bitcoin's volatility due to the supply shocks that it, that it faces um, mm. over its lifetime. Okay, John, I think maybe you just explain what this mining concept is. We understand gold mining. What do we talk about? When we talk about Bitcoin mining, what do we mean? Yeah, sure. So Bitcoin mining is essentially um, the way Bitcoins are created is a computer has to randomly generate a number and then has to run an algorithm over that number. Um, an algorithm is basically just a computer program that processes the number. And the out, there's an output that comes out and that's compared to what's called the target. And if your output is the target, you essentially win the block and you win uh, a reward for your work that you get to the Bitcoin network. And in order to get that, uh, that correct number, you have to generate... You have to process millions and billions even of uh, random inputs. And that takes computer processing power, which is called mining. So essentially, you're just generating random numbers, processing them, comparing it to the target. If you get the target, you say, hey, you say to the network, hey, I got the right uh, number. The network rewards you with some Bitcoin. And that's called basically, it's called proof of work. So you're proving that you did the work in order to find the, the target. And right. there's also a lot of luck. Uh, a lot involved. of luck involved in mining. Huh? Yeah, there is yeah. a lot of luck. Right. So we talk about mining. It's really the computer that's doing the work. Yeah. So the computer right. just processes um, the random numbers. So it generates random numbers, processes them again and again and again until it gets the one that the network is looking for. All right. And uh, Jason, you mentioned this halving concept. So basically the rate at which Bitcoin is mined is halved every yeah. now and again or the, the number so of that's reward being that reduced. you get for. Yeah. From like a simple terms, you know. I think proof of work says it all, right? You have to prove that some work has been done. So if you think about gold in the same way that nature and production limitations limit the amount of gold that can come out of the ground, uh, computer science and mathematics does the same and requires people to provide work and effort in order to get some Bitcoin out of the protocol in, a, in the same way that gold miners. Okay, readers have written to us at MoneyWeb, and there seems to be considerable nervousness about crypto such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, and they're asking us should they get involved. And they ask you some good questions. If you buy a share, you're buying an earning stream that supports the share price. There's something backing that share price. Now, when you're buying Bitcoin, you don't really have the same. That's the argument. Now, I'm going to put it to you that it, it's, uh, it makes it pretty speculative if you're buying Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, John, let's start off with you. How would you answer that? Yeah, sure. So you could look at it uh, to something similar to um, a commodity like gold, uh, where gold like 90% of the gold that's traded every day is paper. It's not, it doesn't, there's not actually physical gold that backs it. If you put all the gold in the world uh, together, it could fit in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And then that doesn't have anything backing it other than the fact that someone else is willing to buy it. And especially when you move out of the physical gold into the derivatives, then there's really nothing backing it. Then it's just a bet between two people who's willing to pay more for it tomorrow, uh, which is exactly the same with Bitcoin. However, with Bitcoin, the supply is absolutely fixed, whereas gold, the supply could uh, increase... 10x tomorrow if a massive reserve is found, where the Bitcoin supply could never change. Um, additionally, Bitcoin is infinitely divisible where gold isn't. Bitcoin's pretty much free to store, free to transfer pretty much. The other day, someone transferred $1.1 billion for a $3 fee, which cost you fortunes to transport $1.1 billion of gold. Who was I mean, that? 
And uh, no one knows. No one knows. It was anonymous, was it? It was an anonymous transfer. So the the, the cost of storage, the cost of transport, uh, you know, the risk of it being stolen are pretty well thought out by Satoshi, who originally developed this. When he did come up with his white paper around Bitcoin, what was that, sort of 12 years ago, thereabouts, this, yeah. of course, was how he designed it. He designed it so that it would have very low risk in terms of uh, very low costs in terms of storage and so on. But it comes down to the definition of money and what is money? You know, is money an actual thing or is it an idea backed by confidence? Yeah, money is absolutely a concept. So like when I first heard about Bitcoin, I thought, wow, this is really cool, but is it going to get buy-in? And until it got buy-in, I didn't think it would ever necessarily be anything. It was a cool experiment. We great if it was something. But until people are using it, people are buying it. It isn't anything. And then in 2017, I think Bitcoin really reached a critical mass of enough people knowing about it, enough people using the network where it actually became money or in this case, more of a store of value than a, than a currency. All right. Jason, what do you say about that? How do you put a value to Bitcoin? How, how is it that we pay $12,000 for a Bitcoin? Explain it to me. Obviously, the first thing to get across is that no form of money has any intrinsic value, right? And even the best sort of store of values being silver and gold, their actual sort of monetary premium above their usability in industry has always been multiples above their actual usage value, right? And uh, I think just elaborating on the, the actual value of what Bitcoin can bring, well, Bitcoin is backed by this demand for an apolitical form of money in a time where Money has never been so political. I think just explain what you mean, money being political. You mean controlled by a national government or a national central bank? Yes. So unfortunately, and and like I I understand the situation that central banks find themselves in, and I, I know that it's not easy to make these decisions once debt has reached these levels. But unfortunately, these guys always have to make a decision between lenders and borrowers. And uh, you, these guys being these guys being central banks, these bi- guys being governments, um, you know, anyone that that says that, you know, central banks are independent from government is I think that we far past that as an idea anymore. And they've become a weapon of government control in that you've got countries like America using their currency to actually stop trade with certain weaponizing the dollar, weaponizing the dollar, weaponizing the, 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 the behemoth that is yeah. the dollar. And, uh, okay, I mean, in terms of the constitution, the South African Reserve Bank is legally independent. Okay. Um, yeah. But, however, there, there is a relationship and they are answerable to parliament. And, of, of course, course, they yeah. do purchase the bonds, the treasury bonds that are issued yeah. by the government. So there is a relationship. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so what you're saying here, without really putting words in your mouth, is that Bitcoin is an answer to that. It's decentralized. It exists on thousands and thousands of computers around the world. It's beyond the reach and control of anybody and therefore beyond the reach of a national government and beyond the reach of a central bank. Is that correct, John? Yeah, I'd say so. Oh, you can almost like look at it like a, like a pig on fiat money, right? We've moved away from having a pig and we've introduced a new digitally native pig to fiat money. We hope that governments uh, don't continue to abuse that pig, but for... The first time we have this, we have a very large asset that has a fixed supply and can act as a peg on our other currencies as a, as a relative alternative. Of course, one of the things that happened is you now have things called stable coins, which are now that, that is something that is backed by fiat currency. And uh, there's, there's some stable coins which are actually backed by fiat currencies and gold. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, you're not, no longer going to be measuring your wealth in terms of rands or dollars, but probably in terms of stable coins. Probably in terms of, of Bitcoin. I think that that would be a brilliant experiment for anyone listening to this is to go and put the the price of stock market indexes against uh, the dollar value of gold. You know, mm. you'll, you'll start to realize that one ounce of gold in 1880 could buy the same amount of uh, Dow in 1980. And that uh, pretty much every stock market index is, is down against gold since 1980 or since 1990, 1999, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Mm. And uh, that just shows you that, you know, value can fluctuate in in a currency like fiat that can be easily debased and therefore we can adjust its supply. And we see things like asset price inflation where people just run to perceived store of value assets like, like stocks that are deflationary in that like they're probably going to reduce the supply of that stock, right? So they, they run to these assets like property and, and the stock market to, to store value and to hide away from the theft that is inflation. We had a story on MoneyWeb this week about that very point is if you look at the S&P 500 in US dollar terms and convert the JSE to dollar terms, mm. we've gone nowhere yeah. for the last 10 now years. Really, the now put the both JSE in gold. Is worth. Mm. Yeah, it's gone flat in mm-hmm. US dollar terms. That's the point you just made. I mean, yeah. And that's, that's measuring it in terms of US dollars. Now you measure in Bitcoin. I yeah, mean, go back 10 years and take your house, mm-hmm. you know, and how many Bitcoin was your house worth 10 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. And look at it today. It's deflationary. Yeah. It's incredibly right? deflationary. I saw yeah. this uh, image on Twitter of an iPhone. The iPhone 4 cost uh, <laughs> 85,000 Bitcoin. The mm-hmm. iPhone 12 cost 0.07 Bitcoin. So it's wow. crazy to think. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to talk to you now, John, about OVEX. We, we had a story also in MoneyWeb this week, and um, it, it drew quite a lot of interest. You know, people want to understand this thing called arbitrage. Now, arbitrage is really exploiting price differences between different markets. So you can buy Bitcoin in an overseas market at a cheaper price than you can buy it here. So really what you're doing is you're sending your money offshore. You're buying Bitcoin there, sending it to South Africa and selling it here. And it's not just Bitcoin. So explain how you came to start up uh, OVEX. Yeah, sure. So OVEX, we're a cryptocurrency exchange. And right now, we're 90% of our volume is done OTC, which is over the counter. So that's for clients that want to buy very large amounts. And we find that South Africa has a lot of demand for Bitcoin, people buying 10, 20 million rand um, of Bitcoin at a time. So these are people that want to like hedge their, their wealth in South Africa. And because of that, um, there's a premium in South Africa. So because Bitcoin is... Uh, a scarce asset, you can't just create it, you have to buy it from someone else who has Bitcoin. And in order to buy it in South Africa from someone else who has Bitcoin, you have to have someone who wants to accept rands for their Bitcoin, which is uh, unusual because uh, Bitcoin is a global asset, uh, it's recognized anywhere and it has that hedge against, uh, against the inflation of the czar. So because of that limitation, people have to pay a premium for Bitcoin in South Africa. And the reason people can't just go buy it overseas is because South Africa has strict capital control laws which prevent people from taking unlimited amounts of money overseas every year. Every year, South Africans can take 1 to 10 million rand overseas. So they're limited by that. There becomes this opportunity for other people who aren't uh, taking money overseas to send their money overseas, buy Bitcoin, and sell it here to uh, South Africans that want access to cryptocurrency and, uh, and Bitcoin. The obvious thing is that, yes, you've, only got this, you've got this limitation on how much money you can send out of South Africa, it's, you've got your discretionary allowance, which is 1 million, and you've got your investment allowance, which is 10 million. So you've got 11 million per person per year, right? However, you could buy a Bitcoin in rands of any quantity, 
Yeah, exactly. you can buy a hundred million rands worth of Bitcoin, and you've externalized your funds. Yeah. You've basically exactly. You so you can buy as much Bitcoin as you want, or as much cryptocurrency as you want, but you're not technically allowed to um, to sell it offshore without uh, treasury approval. Okay. But the thing is, getting into that Bitcoin, you already get that hedge. You're already um, protecting your wealth. If right. the rand devalues by twenty percent next month, which it's done before. Yeah. Uh, your your net worth uh, stays the same in terms of uh, dollars. And even uh, if you're buying Bitcoin, you're going one step further and you're protecting your wealth against the uh, inflation of the dollar as well. Mm. Right. So if the dollar devalues by 20%, you, you're protected there. Jason, tell us about Etherbridge. How did you come to start that? Brilliant. So, yo, I was working at a small equity fund called Evolve Fund Management and I was trying to look for hedges to some of our US dollar positions. And uh, that obviously drove me to trying to understand uh, the debasement of, of money. And it, it took me to a fascinating statistic that over the last 200 years, there have been 52 countries that have exceeded debt-to-GDP levels of 130% to their GDP. And that, that's just government debt. I'm not, not even including private debt and, uh, and household debt. And there debt. are consequences for that. And there are consequences currency for devalue. that. You talk about Venezuela and Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah and, and now I'm talking about America. And uh, America, by the end of 20. 20 will reach uh, 140% uh, debt to GDP. And um, from a probability point of view, 51 out of the 52 countries that have exceeded these levels have defaulted in some way, shape or form, whether that is a nominal default and you actually have real capital destruction or whether there are some kind of restructurings that take place or they do the magic trick of central banks and that is to inflate away the value of that debt um, by increasing the supply of available US dollars. And I, I think we're, over the next 15 years, uh, that will those risks will become incredibly apparent to the everyday investor. And um, yeah, that's that's really the, the opportunity that we saw that, you know, we, we've, we've got a very high certainty on the fact that uh, fiat currencies will suffer massive um, debasement in the coming years. And this is an opportunity to hedge that outcome. Fiat currencies for people who haven't been paying attention that these are these are currencies it's like the rand and the dollar that are backed by national governments there they derive their value from extrinsic means they have value because we are told they are valuable and they have value because we are forced to pay taxes on them i think it comes from the latin word fiat which means hope is it not uh let it be uh, let, let it be <laughs> that's right okay okay Good. So you still haven't explained what Etherbridge is. What is your offering? You know, wh why should we be excited about you? Right. So Etherbridge is targeted at, at uh, family offices, high net worth individuals um, and institutions. It is a global product open to a global audience. Uh, we are domiciled in the Cayman Islands and uh, we have a Bitcoin tracker like fund that we call our digital gold fund. And then we've got the Etherbridge hedge fund that aims to uh, apply a little bit of market timing and hopefully uh, be able to buy low and sell I was asking you this before. Why would one need a Bitcoin tracker fund? Why don't you just buy a Bitcoin? Right. So depending on how regulation goes, I think that a big part of, of regulation will be focusing on the custody aspect of these coins. And if, if we as a fund at Etherbridge can eliminate the need for our clients to be concerned about custody and how those assets are being stored, which we have done in that uh, our assets are, are custodied across multiple data centers in Switzerland. One of the data centers we use is actually considered Europe's safest. We were actually asked once if uh, what would happen in the case of a solar flare or an EMP strike on our on our data centers, and we, we're happy to say that they've got the necessary certifications to uh, to survive an event. Their, like their that. computers will survive a solar flare. Uh, well, it's actually in military bunkers in Switzerland. Uh -huh. right? So it's uh, inside of mountains and. Uh, 
bunkers like that. So it's, it's, I think it's fascinating that this kind of level of thought has gone into yes, the protection uh, of remember, these, these digital are, assets. Remember, these are bearer assets, eh? They yeah, are, yeah, they're bearer assets, yeah, which means somewhere. that you know you can carry it on a flash disk. And uh, I think John, you were saying the uh, the other day, you can even memorize it. Yeah. you don't even need a flash disk, <laughs> right? You got to yeah. memorize twelve numbers or digits. That is so. one of the pitfalls, I guess, as all with Bitcoin is that uh, it's a lot of responsibility to custodying it. There's a lot of uh, custody businesses that have emerged, yeah. and often it's easier for clients to just hold their crypto on an exchange because if something goes wrong, they lose their password. They can always just reset it, but if they lose their keys, the the coins are gone. Yeah, right. Right. So I think from you know from an asset management point of view, um, when dealing with high net worth individuals and the market that we're going for, the institutional market, uh, it'll be incredibly important that we can prove to them that we are using third parties and that we've got the measures in place that we are custodying their assets adequately on their behalf. Okay, so custody is going to become a very, very custody important Custody is a issue, massive yeah. business. I mean, there's a fund in the U.S. called Grayscale BTC, and they custody something like $5 billion of Bitcoin. You know, right. Yesterday they took, not yesterday, it's, I think it was last week sometime, they took in 300 million U.S. in one yeah, day. Yeah, one day. Uh-huh. That's crazy. One day. Right. So, so people are really now paying a lot of attention to this custody issue. Especially institutions, so like yeah. I'm sure you guys service. Because institutions aren't necessarily allowed to hold um, assets directly. They have to hold it through a, a licensed custodian. Okay. Yeah. So there's a big opportunity for that and a lot of great companies emerging around it. All right, we're running out of time here. I've got a couple of quick questions here, John. One of the things we're starting to see is a unit type trust fund emerging in the crypto space. And uh, Revix and EC10 are two examples of that. Bitfund is another one where you can create your index. It's very exciting that you can actually do that. You know, you can fiddle around and play with how much Bitcoin do I want in this and how much Ethereum do I want to, to hold. And, and you just reweight that uh, portfolio as things go on. Uh, what do you think about this development? Is this world of decentralized finance or DeFi as it's being called, is, is that going to just op- throw open the doors to all kinds of things that we can't even conceive of right now? Yeah, I think for sure. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the decentralized finance space. And what it allows is it allows for essentially hedge funds and like you're saying index funds to, to evolve autonomously without having a company actually behind it. So a company will develop the code and put it out into the wild and people can invest and then the code will execute based on how it was, how it was programmed. So say it's meant to keep 10% Ethereum, it can rebalance itself and do really interesting things around that. The problem is right now it is still very early and there's a lot of uh, hacks in the DeFi space. There's a very famous developer in the DeFi space called Andre Kroenger, South African guy, and he, he created a DeFi product, raised something like $10 million overnight. In the morning, all the funds were gone. Um, it wow. was hacked and everyone lost their money so that it is a very risky space DeFi. has he lost his following he is still pretty big he did another fund another thing also gone next to so it happened to us but the thing is what he's doing is he says he like his whole thing on twitter it says i test in prod which means he tests in production so his code that he publishes he says is it's testing don't use it and then because he's got such a big following people just they call it aping in they just aped into his his fund and they lost all their money wow. before it was like anything you just put the code out there and overnight there was like 10 million dollars in there. and and he and people still follow that i mean you still put money in yeah because the, the returns are so high um on his other project was called yfi it's like an aggregator of DeFi. so you put your money into it and it autonomously will find the best returns in DeFi, and will put the money there and people were earning like i don't think it was up to like 100 uh, percent annual percentage rates so the returns were insane uh, so people are very eager for those high returns. So mm. they take those risks. 
But uh, I think in the future, once it's tried and tested, you'll have opportunities like that. It won't be as high, but it will be autonomous and you won't have to worry about, uh, about those kinds of shortfalls. And to be sure, that's not, that is separate to Bitcoin and uh, the tried and tested stuff like what we do. Right. That's DeFi and DeFi's like cutting edge. Jason, how do you see the world of investment five or 10 years from now? I think that um, when you bring up these types of companies, I think the, the most exciting thing about them is what they're doing is they're taking the market participants and putting them right on the edge of the financial network instead of having multiple layers of intermediary. So I think that the way in which people are going to be able to use their money, the way in which they're going to be able to have smart bank accounts and that they can essentially, like using something like UN Finance, that Wi-Fi that John was referring to now, people are going to be able to do a hell of a lot more with their money. And uh, I think that Bitcoin will, will rise within these next sort of five years and that Ethereum will enable use cases in finance that we haven't even sort of started to imagine yet. And uh, it's really about getting that user as close to a financial network as possible. And like, if you don't mind, just a quick example, if you think about uh, these exchanges, uh, these decentralized exchanges, right, that essentially coordinate and facilitate the financial service that is exchange, right? So I use an exchange sometimes called Uniswap. And on Uniswap, I can not only buy an asset and sell an asset, but I can take that idle asset once I've purchased it, and I can put it into Uniswap's liquidity pool, and I can start to actually earn exchange fees that are happening on Uniswap, right? So it's going to be a whole new world of dynamic investments. I think that uh, when you hear about what some of these companies are doing and and how they're bringing that user closer to the network, it's incredible. And I think that'll be the big theme in the next sort of uh, five to 10 years. Interesting. John, what do you think? Even five years from now, Moore's Law, you know, two years from now, what's what's the world of investment and finance going to look like? Yeah, I think it could look very, very different. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with the dollar and in traditional finance. It could uh, completely devalue. I think things like autonomous funds and DeFi will be a part of it. I don't think they're going to be like the driving force in uh, in finance. I think there's going to be a lot of active management, a lot of uh, legal structures, not just uh, code structures, things like what, what you guys are doing, Jason. I think that uh, Bitcoin will play a major role. I think it will probably be one of the biggest uh, safe havens for investors. Ten years from now? Ten years for sure. Okay. I think it'll be What's your prediction? Gold. Price, ten years from now? A million dollars? I'm not sure. I think I think it can have a market cap equal to or greater than gold, which is, I'm not sure. Could be wrong with yeah, that. So, yeah, Two so, trillion. yeah in, anything under 11 trillion just seems laughable. In, 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 a, in a world <laughs> where Bitcoin exists, you know, so our base case for the next sort of 15 to 18 months is, is 100K. And I think for, that for the next for the next sort of 18 months, I 18 think, months. In, I think what it thousand dollars. Look, right. in a world where it costs just the swipe of a keyboard to produce a dollar, it's not unimaginable that Bitcoin could hit a million US dollars. Yeah, I think yeah. it's uh, almost likely with the stimulus. I mean, they're printing with three trillion dollars already. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, it's insane the, the devaluation of the dollar that's going to emerge. Right. You see, one of the big arguments again, and I just want to wrap up with this, is that despite all of this printing, this quantitative easing that's going on, which is in effect money printing, you're not seeing that necessarily in your grocery products. Now, there's uh, the, I think it was the French economist uh, Cantillon that's called the Cantillon effect, is that when you print money, it's not going to show up in your grocery bill. What it is going to do is, first, it's going to end up in the hands of the wealthy, the banks, the big hedge fund investors and things like that. And there's a filtration process that happens from there. The stock market is, you know, the bubble on the stock market and the bond market. Those are evidences of inflation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, 
you know, on the deflation, inflation type argument, right? We, we've been experiencing two uh, sort of polar opposite trends, one being an, an incredibly inflationary monetary policy outlook, and then the other being the massive deflationary effect of technology. And you've got these two huge effects going on. And, uh, you know, when you look at these basket of goods that, that uh, constitute CPI, they all have been through incredibly deflationary processes, right? Like they should be getting cheaper because the technology we're using to produce them makes it cheaper to produce them, right? right. So um, we have been and we we haven't been seeing inflation because if if you just look from sort of the 70s to now, the everyday person has gotten poorer, has mm. gotten. Uh, uh, we, you know, we've reached a point of wealth inequality that is comparable to that of 1937. And then when you look at like CPI and who's spending the bulk of their money on CPI, well, they've been getting poorer and poorer every year. Mm. And that's probably why we haven't seen inflation manifest there. Let, let me ask you a final question here. Uh, are you are you all in on cryptos? I'm all in 100%. on cryptos. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Apart what about you, home? John? Yeah, I'm also all in personally. I mean, 99% of my net worth is in OVEX, the company. And of right. the company, we allocated probably about 30% of our cash holdings into crypto. I mean, right. to Bitcoin alone. Okay. Uh, the rest is in a mix of dollars and, and rands. And that's purely because the way we operate, we need to keep afloat in dollars and rands. Right. And that's the only reason. Otherwise, we'd be all in on Bitcoin. Okay. Gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Thanks very much. That was John Avadio, who is the founder and CEO of crypto company Ovex, and Jason Carpenter of Etherbridge. Thank you both for coming in. Thank you very much, Ken. Pleasure. Thank you, Ken.